Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Today, we're going to talk about higher ed and some of the challenges it's facing based on a really interesting book written by Brian Rosenberg. The name of the book is Whatever It Is, I'm Against It. Brian is President Emeritus at McAllister College. He's also a visiting professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Ed and a senior advisor at the African Leadership University. We're going to get into all of this in a minute, but before we do any of that, I want to welcome Brian to the show. Brian, welcome to Trending in Education. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and I am deeply immersed in your book, which I just wrapped up prior to interviewing you. It's a really interesting read. We're going to get into it in a bit. But before we do that, we always like to get to know our guests a little bit better in their own words. Can you catch us up on who you are and what your professional journey has been like to this point? Yeah, I always assumed that I would spend my career as an English professor. I got a PhD in English and for the first 15 years of my career, taught uh, English at Allegheny College in Northwestern Pennsylvania, a small liberal arts college. I loved it. I loved the teaching. I loved writing about literature. And then for reasons that I can't fully explain, I ended up becoming a dean. I became the dean of faculty. It's kind of like the provost position. At another small liberal arts college, Lawrence University in Appleton, Wisconsin, I seem to have an attraction for places that are cold and snowy. And then after five years at Lawrence, I became the president of McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota. So I found a place even colder. And I was in that position for 17 years. That is and remains the most impactful period in my in my professional life. Finished up at McAllister in uh, the spring of 2020, which happened to be when COVID hit. Mm-hmm. Those two things were not connected. I had announced my departure a year earlier. Mm-hmm. One of the last things I had to do as president was send everybody home. Right. Uh, so it was a, it was not a great final semester. Mm. Uh, and then once I left McAllister, I was asked to be something called president in residence at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Mm-hmm. Uh, did that. I started teaching here. Uh, realized that I loved being back in the classroom again. Yeah, And so I've continued to teach a couple of courses a year at, at Hugsy, we'd call it. And then I also got involved, and we'll get into this later, with uh, the African Leadership University and have been spending a lot of my time over the last three years doing what I can to help build a really innovative university on a continent that needs it. And I write. So right now, I'm, I'm really happy with my life. I don't supervise any people, which is great. I just have to supervise myself, and I'm doing right. things that I like. Yeah, absolutely. Coming out of your exiting semester being spring of 2020, that's got to be rough on, on a number of levels. It definitely comes through in the book is how formative your McAllister experience was, as well as all your other professorial experiences. But then it's also interesting coming out of that in 2020 and then writing this book. This is kind of, and I'll hold the book up for those of you who are are watching. The title is amazing. Whatever it is, I'm against it. Resistance to change in higher education. It's super timely. And, you know, the interesting thing for me doing this podcast through this tumultuous period is that in 2020, had a lot of conversations about the future of education. Everyone was talking about the possibility of this moment and, you know, everything's changed, which gives us a chance to really reinvent. Over the span of the last now four years, 
I think the reality is setting in that some of this stuff has an inertia to it. Some of this stuff is harder to change. Can you talk a little bit about what led you to write the book? Because it did seem like there was almost a freshness to your take that probably was really tied to being at that point in your professional journey. Well, I think there were a couple of different things that inspired it. One goes back uh, well before COVID hit, and that is uh, a question that's been plaguing me throughout a, a large portion of my professional career. And that is, why is it that an industry that speaks so often about transformation, virtually every college and university mission statement has mm -hmm. a word like transformative, transformational in its mission statement. That is, as we know, largely populated by people who consider themselves progressives mm -hmm. and try to work for social change. Mm -hmm. Why is it that that industry is one of the most change-resistant, if not the most change-resistant industries in our country. That paradox always scratched at me. And I came to the conclusion that when you have something that is that pervasive and persistent, it's got to be rooted in cultures and structures. It can't yeah. just be individuals who don't want to do their jobs well. Yeah. This, I think most people in higher education do want to do their jobs well. So what I started looking at was, you know, what are the cultural and structural impediments in higher ed education to change? Now, the COVID moment was really interesting. There's sort of a good news, bad news story, I think, that came out of that moment. Hmm. The good news story is how quickly higher education, in fact, did pivot to an entirely different mode of delivery, at least for a while. Mm -hmm. People were predicting a cataclysm for higher education that didn't quite transpire. Right. Part of that, obviously, was funding that was provided by the government. Sure. Uh, but part of it was the fact that when faced with a sort of existential crisis, a global crisis, higher education actually did pretty well. Mm -hmm. it, it pivoted to online learning and other forms of online support, I think, surprisingly quickly. The, the disappointing part, and you alluded to this in your opening comments, is that a lot of those innovations haven't stuck. Yep. And so... People who were predicting that coming out of the worst part of the pandemic, higher education would be dramatically different, would think differently about technology, would think differently about cost, access. By and large, that hasn't happened, or if it has happened, it's happened very slowly. Yep. And what you're seeing is that a lot of colleges and universities are not living in a new normal, but are trying to revert to the old normal. Yeah. So on the one hand, to prove that higher education can change. On the other hand, it reminded us again of just how profound that resistance to change is. Yeah. And that's very much throughout the book. I think that tension, that struggle, I guess, is very much central to the story really that is unfolding here where, you know, there's a lot of recognition of what's unique and powerful and truly transformative to refer back to what you were saying about higher education. And then at the same time, at a point where we are facing existential challenges on the regular, it's not like you innovate once because there's a, a once in a century pandemic and then you revert back to the old way. It does feel like, at least based on my read of the book, you're almost arguing for a paradigm shift to being able to pivot more regularly, being able to get closer to your actual students, closer to the actual problems that they're trying to solve. And in order to do that, there's some letting go of the old models that are, are really central to that. 
can you outline for us the problem space that you're talking about? Like what's, mm -hmm. what are the real challenges within higher ed? And there are several different dimensions of it, but how would you characterize the current state of play within higher education? Yeah. And first of all, I, I understand that people have been predicting the demise of higher education since the creation of higher education. So there's nothing new about someone saying oh, we've got a major problem here. And I understand why after a while people just look at it as a, as a boy who cried wolf. Mm -hmm. But every once in a while, there is a wolf. And the conclusion that I've come to is that we have, in fact, reached the point where the current model of higher education is both for most institutions. And we can, of course, set aside a small group of very affluent, very selective institutions. Right. Uh, but the current model for most institutions is both economically unsustainable uh, and in many ways unacceptable in terms of its outcomes. And mm. when, when people push back against that, I, I, I confront them with two numbers, 56 and 46. 56% right now is the average discount rate at a private college in the United States, which means that private higher education in the U.S. is on sale for more than half off. <laughs> and that number has been rising pretty rapidly mm. every year. Mm -hmm. And you cannot keep marking down your product. You know, higher education, I've said many times, is sort of right now like, like Nordstrom Rack. You know, everything's on sale. Yeah. That is unsustainable if the markdown every year gets higher and higher. Sooner or later, you're giving it away for free. It's sort right. of the definition of economic unsustainability. Mm -hmm. Layer on top of that, demographics. You know, a lot of people talk about what's called the demographic cliff. We know over the next five years, the number of high school graduates in the United States is going to decline by about 15%. So think about the challenges that most colleges are having now filling their classes and balancing their budgets. Right. And then take away 15% of the high school graduates. Mm -hmm. And you can see that the problem, particularly in the Northeast and the Midwest, is going to get worse. So the economic model just can't continue. There's something that economists call Stein's Law, uh, after economist named Herbert Stein, which says that if something cannot continue, it will stop. And sooner or later, the model that higher education is using right now, the economic model will stop because yeah. it won't be sustainable. Yeah. So that's the 56. The 46 is the percentage of African-American students who enroll in a United States college and graduate within six years, not four <laughs> years, six. Mm -hmm. In other words, fewer than half the African-American students who start a bachelor's degree in the United States completed. And that is, that is simply unacceptable in yeah. terms of equity, in terms of, of human cost in terms of financial cost. Right. And so the bottom line is that we are at a point where we need a system that is more sustainable economically, more affordable, and doing a better job of getting more students to completion. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that I have all the answers to the question of how we get there, right. uh, but I am convinced that where we are right now is not a place we can stay. Yeah. And there is hope in terms of some of these models that we'll get into the African Leadership University mm -hmm. and some of the other examples that you outlined. But the other case that's laid out, I, I think, pretty persuasively through the book is that a combination of factors from reputation to incentives to the disciplines, shared governance and tenure, all of those components of the higher ed system, as we understand it, contribute to this stagnation, this inertia that makes it difficult to innovate, 
it also to me brings up the whole idea of risk aversion, loss aversion, where you know folks are are kind of protecting turf rather than actually trying to save the institution. When you couple that with the increased distrust of higher ed as an institution among rising generations, increasingly folks, even beyond the demographic cliff, folks are just questioning, should I go? There's an increasing concern among rising generations on the return on investment, looking at even the student loan crises we've seen. So it's kind of bleak, but I do feel that there are some through lines really in your book that indicate that there are alternative models that would likely be viable, but it's almost as if folks are reluctant to actually Mm -hmm. explore them. Can you lay that out for our listeners a little bit? Sure. People don't like change, particularly dramatic change. We, We know that. There may be a small number of people who are simply intrinsically motivated to change things for the better, but most of us because change is so hard, mm-hmm. requires some sort of extrinsic motivation. You know, you do something better at your job because you get a raise, mm-hmm. or you don't touch that hot stove because it hurts. The problem right now in higher education is that the people who have the power to change things don't have the motivation, and the people who have the motivation really don't have any power. Mm-hmm. So right now in higher education, I think the two groups that have the most power to change things would be administrators and faculty. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the typical college president, the tenure is getting shorter and shorter. It's now down to under six years. You were an exception, 17 year run. That's, that's pretty. Yeah, I was, I was, I was fortunate, but it's, you know, the average has dropped from about eight and a half to under six. And I think for publics, it's about five. Mm -hmm. So presidents are in a more precarious position than ever before. And we know all you have to do is pick up the papers every day, and you know, the presidents who push for more than incremental change tend not to last very long. Right. So people want to keep their jobs. It's understandable. And so you have to ask, what is the motivation for doing something that is more likely than not going to cost you your job and has only a limited chance of success? And, right. you know, the response of most presidents, rationally enough, is I'm going to try to stay in my lane. I'll try to raise money. I'll show up at football games. Uh, I'll make speeches. But, you know, I'm not going to wander into that really dangerous land of quicksand where if I step too far, I'm going to get swallowed up. Yeah. And for, you know, the faculty at most institutions who have power are the, the tenured faculty. Mm-hmm. And I totally get it. If you're tenured and you are essentially guaranteed a job for the rest of your professional life, particularly if you're in the second half of your career and college tenured faculty on average are about a decade older than the average American worker. Mm. So it's an aging group. Mm -hmm. If you're in that point in your career, what is the motivation suddenly to make your life much harder uh, by changing things? Mm -hmm. The groups that do have motivation, I would say, are are groups like non-tenured track faculty, whose, whose lot is often really rotten. Mm-hmm. Uh, graduate students who who know that their training is not preparing them for the job marker they're going to face, mm-hmm. and sometimes students, but none of them really have any power within the the dynamics of most colleges and universities. So right. you have power without motivation, and you have motivation without power, and that is not a good recipe for change. Mm-hmm. And so even though 
most of these institutions can look 10 or 15 years down the road and see, see a problem coming. There was just not the immediate motivation to do something to change it. And so, you know, it's, we, we are stuck where we are, which as you said, is in a place where the public opinion of higher education is certainly the, the, the worst it has been in my professional life, which has been pretty long. Yeah. You know, I've been in the world of higher education since I entered college as an 18 year old. Yeah. I never left it. It's hard to argue that this is not in terms of level of public respect, the worst moment for higher education in, in my lifetime. Yeah. And we're seeing that play out in very practical ways. So in many, many states, the percentage of high school students who are choosing to go to college is declining. Mm -hmm. But you layer that on top of the demographics and the problem gets even worse. Right. And we're seeing it, of course, affect legislatures. Why would you see a legislature give more money to higher education if they don't have faith in higher education? So right. These perceptions do have real world consequences and you'd have to stick your head in the sand to say, yeah, things are okay right now mm -hmm. with the, the place of higher education in American society. Yeah. And in many ways, the book is a, a call for change and mm -hmm. a call to really look more critically at the dynamics that lead to this stagnation, to this risk aversion. And that's why I do think it is interesting to look elsewhere, look outside of higher ed or look outside of traditional higher ed and a lot of the existing schools and programs. The one point before leaving them, though, the other note that comes through loud and clear in the book, and I've read about this elsewhere, is that it really is a tale of two sets of colleges in the U.S. where there's the top 20, top 50, most selective U.S. News and World Reports, you know, bells of the ball. And then there's everything else. And in the case of the elite universities, they have large endowments. They're turning away students. Their alumni are invested and investing in the future of their success. That's a very different case than small liberal arts colleges, public universities. We're not going to get into it, but I'm an alum of New College of Florida, which has its own <laughs> A set of complexity. So I was thinking about some of what's going on there when I was reading the book, but it really is a contrast between maybe where we're all anchored, which is on the Harvards and Princeton's, MIT, Stanford, et cetera. And then the reality of, you know, is 3000 plus universities in the US, the majority of them, they're aspiring to be Harvard, but they will never be Harvard. I'd love to hear a little more from you on this. Yeah. And this is a deep source of frustration within the world of higher education. As you say, there are thousands of colleges and universities of many, many different kinds, uh, ranging from community colleges to regional publics, to small privates, to large privates. And the overwhelming majority of the attention is focused on a small handful of elite institutions. Mm. There was a day a few weeks ago when the New York Times had five op-eds about Harvard. Yeah. About, about the situation with Claudine Gay. Yeah. And so many people form their judgments of American higher education on the basis of this small group of elite universities, which in many ways, that's like forming your, your judgment of the automobile industry on the basis of Lamborghini and Ferrari. Right. You know, they're, they're outliers, they're luxury goods. Mm. And I think people get the mistaken impression 
that a lot of the behavior that goes on at these elite institutions goes on throughout American higher education, and it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Most American colleges serve very different students than those elite institutions serve. And most of them do not have gobs of money that they have just lying aside to spend on whatever they want. You know, most of them are struggling just to fill their seats. And so it is very much a tale of, of two worlds, one of which is very, very small and very, very privileged, and the other of which is gigantic and is facing a very different set of challenges. You know, the reality is that most students attending community college are not right now going to school thinking about woke politics. They go on to school trying to get classes done and get their degree and get a job. Yeah. And so to extrapolate from some of the things that people are critical of at elite universities and say, this is American higher education, it's misleading and frustrating and is not helping perception of the sector overall. And it's feeding into the negative perceptions among the rising population around why even go to college. And then the problem, I think, from an innovator's dilemma kind of perspective is that the non-elite universities are still aspiring to be like the elite universities in many ways. So they're not able to let go of a lot of the institutions of higher ed that have been around forever. That's where I did want to pivot the conversation a little bit. I left your book inspired by the example of the African Leadership University. You also talked about Sterling College in Vermont, and it does seem like there's a real service that you're doing, and it's something that I wanted to do on this show, is to showcase some alternative models that are meaningfully different and perhaps signaling a direction that more of higher education could pursue. I thought especially the case of the African Leadership University, which was really kind of like a greenfield mm -hmm. new initiative, launching a new university in Africa, you know, what went into thinking about that? And then if there are other examples that you think might help us understand where higher ed could go. You know, one of the things I've heard from not a small number of people is that large parts of my book can be a downer and I get it, but you know, I'm someone who believes that the beginning of solving a problem is understanding the nature of the problem. You can't climb out of a hole by denying the fact that you're in a hole. Mm -hmm. So I do spend a lot of time trying to understand why it is that higher education has found it so difficult to change. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also don't think it's impossible. I know it's hard, but there's a saying that is painted over the entryway of both campuses of the African Leadership University. Three words do hard things. Mm -hmm. And that is that those of us who are in a position of privilege, and if you get to go to a university, you are in many ways automatically relative to many people in the world privileged, mm -hmm. uh, have a responsibility to do hard things for the benefit of others. So changing higher ed education, hard, impossible, no. So uh, I got involved with the African Leadership University a little over three years ago was founded by Fred Swanaker, who is a McAllister College graduate and one of the leading social innovators in Africa. And, and ALU is designed to solve a, a very clear and very challenging problem. Africa is the youngest continent in the world. The average age is 19. The average age in the U.S. is 38. It's the fastest growing population in the world. 15 most rapidly growing cities in the world are all in Africa. 
Mm-hmm. And it is the most underserved by higher education. Only 9% of the students who graduate from high school in Africa go to college. Wow. And a lot of that is because they're, they're too few and they're too expensive. Mm-hmm. And so the problem that ALU was designed to try to solve is how do we get more higher education of high quality within reach of more students in a continent that desperately needs it? And what do we really need to teach those students? And so the mission of the university is to educate ethical and entrepreneurial leaders, because the idea is that these are the people who will create jobs, who will start businesses, who will go into government. Mm -hmm. And so the challenge, and it's hard, is how do you design a high quality education on a continent where the average middle class family can afford to pay maybe $2,000 a year? And that's the middle class, which is small. And so... It's, it's been a challenging journey, but we've come to the conclusion that the only way to do it is to center the student in the educational process. That is, don't center it around faculty. There aren't enough PhDs in Africa to even do that if you wanted to. Hmm. Take advantage of the innate human ability to learn, which you know people have been talking about for centuries, and rely on what technology and what experiential learning can do as parts of the educational process mm-hmm. and try to develop a model that is less reliant on the things that drive cost, that is faculty members and physical campuses. Right. Uh, but don't lose sight of the things that distance education often gets wrong. We know that there are problems with online learning. The completion rates are very low. Students feel isolated and disconnected. So how do you take those realities and craft a model that is effective? And so what ALU has done is create a model that I would describe as hybrid uh, and experiential. Mm-hmm. So every student spends, first of all, the degree is three years and not four because there aren't these gigantic breaks. So right. there are basically, there are the equivalent of three U.S. semesters, each of which is divided by three weeks. So mm-hmm. you immediately lop off a year of financial cost and opportunity cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, students all spend the first term on a campus, getting to know one another, building community, becoming acculturated into the AOU culture, in-person instruction. They all take the same first term, the leadership core, which focuses on both hard skills and soft skills and helps them become learners. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of their time is a mix of in-person, online, and experiential learning. Mm-hmm. And the experiential may be the most important part of it. Every student is required each year to do an internship. And students don't choose a major, they choose a mission. Think about the relation that most people feel between their college major and the work they did once they moved beyond the major mm-hmm. uh, and beyond college. Well, ALU is designed to make a more direct connection between the lives students have lived and will live than what they study. Mm. So what you find is students who grew up in villages without electricity going to ALU and designing systems where you can put portable uh, solar arrays on a truck and drive it to a village right? and provide electricity without infrastructure. So it's grown. When I joined ALU three years ago, there were maybe 800 students. Now they're about two and a half thousand. Okay. The goal is to keep growing and to reach as many as five or 10,000 students at a time. Mm -hmm. Uh, The tuition is $3,000 a year right now. And a lot of the students are on either full or partial scholarship. It's attracted a lot of philanthropic support. But the most interesting part about it, I think, is just it's an experiment to trying to figure out 
how far you can push self-directed learning. You know, people talk a lot about the, the potential of technology. It's there and important, but I don't think we talk enough about the potential of human beings. Mm. And are human beings best suited to be passive learners sitting in a classroom or active learners steering their own learning journey? Right. And ALU is founded on the notion that even a student who enters, who spent her entire life in a refugee camp, which is the case for many students, can come into this institution and be, be taught how to be a learner and then direct her own learning journey. Mm -hmm. The early results are extremely encouraging. The persistence rates are very high. Students are getting jobs more quickly. A disproportionate number go into areas like education, trying to, to help other people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that, you know, there is a process called reverse innovation, where in situations of constraint, people are forced to, to solve problems that yeah. those who are in situations of abundance don't have to solve. Mm -hmm. And I really do believe that innovation in higher education is not going to come from the Ivy League. It's not going to come from, from Williams, Amherst, and Swarthmore. It's going to come from institutions either inside or outside the United States that are in situations of constraint and mm -hmm. have to do something different. You know, you asked if there are other examples. One of the interesting things that's come from my book is that I've been contacted by a number of people who are trying to do these kinds of things in the U.S. There's a college in Washington, D.C. called New U, which is brand new. And it has a lot in common with ALU. Three-year degree, much lower tuition. There are no sports facilities. There are no fraternities. They don't do research, they teach. Mm. They serve almost entirely an underrepresented first-generation population. There's someone else who contacted me who was in the early stages of starting something called Polymath University. Again, very similar. Three years, very experiential, narrower focus, less expensive. So there are these ed startups all over the place. The problem that they face is that the entire system is not designed to accommodate startups. Mm. So, you know, if you take these institutions, for instance, in order to get access to federal Pell Grants, they need to be accredited. Right. In order to get accredited, it takes four or five years. So even though they're serving Pell eligible students, they can't get Pell funding. Mm -hmm. So, you know, is there a way that we can think through the accreditation process so that we still watch out for bad actors, mm -hmm. but we make it more possible for innovators who want to come in and try something different to actually be successful. And, you know, pushing it a step further, I really think it's possible to see these sorts of innovations within existing institutions. They're not green fields, but maybe you can create a little green field within your existing organization. Mm. Every campus has people, faculty, administrators, staff, who are interested in change and interested in innovation. Mm -hmm. But what typically happens is they run into blockers and they give up. Yep. Um, why not create laboratories of experimentation? Mm -hmm. Why not say, all right, you know, you 10 people, here's the problem we face. We want you to work the problem and right. come back with some interesting ideas. And if there's an idea that really seems compelling, all right, we'll let you pilot it and we'll see if it works. Mm -hmm. And if it does work, then maybe we'll try to persuade more people on campus 
right. that this should be bigger and larger and more central. So we know that trying to persuade an entire campus community of something dramatically different almost never works. Right. I don't think what we try enough are these small pockets of innovation and experimentation, which, you know, it's students of organizational change typically say are more effective than trying to push through large group change all at once. So yeah, some of it's going to come from without, but I think it's, it's possible that some of it could come from within. Mm -hmm. You know, my hope is that most of it comes from nonprofit sectors. I have nothing inherently against for-profit industries, I get a little worried about for-profit industries that are providing essential social services, right? You know, whether that's healthcare or higher education. So, sure, sure. you know, it, it's happening in healthcare for-profits in a very, very big way. I do worry a bit that if higher education doesn't begin to fix itself, we're going to see more larger, well-financed for-profit actors come in and disrupt things. Mm-hmm. I'm talking to Brian Rosenberg, who's the author of Whatever It Is, I'm Against It. It's an amazing title. It's a really great read, Resistance to Change in Higher Education. We made it this for Brian, without talking about artificial intelligence. You did mention technology briefly. Uh, also, many of these conversations wind up gravitating towards the future of work and trying to equip young learners for jobs that don't even really exist yet. Any perspective on that? It does feel like in addition to the demographics and some of the other challenges we outlined, the economic, financial challenges, there's also the significant disruptions that are happening around the nature of work and the types of jobs that graduates of higher ed are going to be moving into. I'm sure this is something you were grappling with at McAllister and it's something at Hugsy. I'm sure you're you're also thinking about it a lot there, but I'd love to get a little bit of your perspective on how to think about these emerging technologies and how maybe higher ed or other leaders in the space can perhaps future-proof themselves against some of the disruption that's coming? Yeah, well, you know, AI is, I think, it has the potential to be a disruptor on a level that we just haven't seen. And, you know, there are aspects of it that excite me and there are aspects of it that terrify me. But I think the one thing that we cannot do as a higher education industry is try to ignore it because it, it it's there. We know it, it's going to be used by bad actors. And so we need to figure out a way how to use it effectively by good actors. Yep. Everybody focuses, I think, when they talk about artificial intelligence, where a lot of people focus on the wrong things, things like students cheating on papers. No question that's a problem. No question it's going to change the kinds of assignments that faculty members have to give. But, you know, more interesting questions are things like, are there ways that AI could actually expand our ability to provide access to students? So, you know, just to give the example of ALU for a minute, every student gets a learning coach. But that's hard to scale. Yep. And, you know, is there a potential to use artificial intelligence to increase the reach of learning coaches. I don't have the answer to that, but I think we want to make sure that there are people thinking who do know the technology, thinking seriously about questions like that. How could it actually increase access to education? You know, I am always cautious about how we use technologies. The novel that I taught more than any other when I was teaching British literature was Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Mm, yeah. 
I recommend that any student who is majoring in computer science or software engineering or any kind of technological field, read Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. Because Frankenstein is essentially the story of a person who did what he could do and didn't think about whether he should do it. Mm -hmm. He went where the technology led him mm -hmm. uh, and didn't think about the ethical implications. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think we need to be thinking both about what the technology can do and what the technology should do. Mm -hmm. Higher education doesn't have a great track record when it comes to embracing the potentials of technology. You know, most traditional colleges have seen it as a threat. Yeah. And, you know, with good reason, I think it, it does have the potential to upend the economic model of the on-person campus and the traditional classroom mm -hmm. for better or for worse. Mm -hmm. It ain't going away. And, you know, even in the months since my book came out, it's become more prevalent. Yeah. You know, I, I teach a class on ethical questions in higher education. And this is the first year when I devote a session to yeah. AI. Mm -hmm. because the ethical questions surrounding it are complicated and, and numerous. So I think it's going to change things. I think it reminds us how dangerous it is to assume what jobs students should be trained to do. Yeah, I think a lot of students right now who are training as software engineers are terrified Yeah, that what seemed like a golden ticket a few years ago maybe won't be. And it reminds us why some sort of broad education is essential. Really what you want to do is teach people how to be learners. Yeah. That way, regardless of the jobs that exist, they will be able to learn what they need to learn to do those jobs. If all you're teaching is content, then you really run the risk that that content is going to quickly be outdated. Mm. So I don't care whether the, the instruction is in person or online, we need to make sure we're teaching students how to learn and not just filling them with information. Yeah. Amazing conversation today with Brian Rosenberg. We're about at time, Brian. It's been a wonderful conversation. Again, we'll include a link to the book, whatever it is, I'm against it. We'll include that in the show notes for the episode. As we're wrapping up here, our listeners are heading back to the rest of their lives. Any takeaways, any concluding thoughts as we conclude here? You know, I, I just wanted to say again that remember, do hard things. You know, I, I think that there are reasons that hard problems are hard and it's often that they're important. And I think a lot of the people who right now are just criticizing higher education just aren't willing to actually do the work of trying to improve it. I think a lot of their prescriptions for improvement aren't really improvement. They're political. So yeah, it's incumbent upon all of us who care about higher education to be willing to do hard things. Yeah. Reminds me of a couple of learning science concepts that I love, productive struggle and desirable difficulty. You got to be willing to take on a little bit of struggle, a little bit of, you know, pain is weakness leaving the body. Maybe it's a little bit of ignorance leaving the body at the same time. So like you have to do some work to actually reap some benefits. Thank you so much for the work you've done throughout your career. The book is wonderful. And I think our listeners got a lot out of our time with you today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And for our listeners, if you like what you heard, please write us a review, share the good word. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education. <laughs>